Welcome to episode six of the Great Lakes Horror Company, a place to hear about horror in its many forms when authors live in the life. Let's meet our children of the night, who are also all members of the Horror Writers Association Ontario chapter. First up, hello, I'm Monica S. Kubler. I'm a YA horror author and a horror journalist. Amanda Robertson, a horror fan and a horror hopeful. I'm Bill Snyder, horror poet and sometimes writer of other scary words. And I'm Sephra Jerome, and I'm a horror author and the Ontario chapter head. So for tonight, we're not just children of the night, but that's our topic for this episode. I'm going to be talking to these three authors about uh, what led them to a lifetime of horror. I want to know how the darkness found its way into your life and became a vocation. So let's start with your first scary book. Well, for me, um, one of the books that traumatized me, though it wasn't necessarily a, a scary book, was Beautiful Joe, um, which is a story about a dog. But it was very horrific, so I was very young when I was reading it, uh, during a thunderstorm, of course. And uh, it's just a dog story, you know, like Lassie and Old Yeller and all those other depressing goddamn dog books. And this poor little dog got his ears and tail cut off and he's left for dead and stabbed with a pitchfork and all this crap. So to me, that was my first kind of scary real book. Um, of course, uh, like most people in my generation, I was traumatized by uh, fairy tales growing up. You know, the real fairy tales where they cut off heads and toes and body parts and roast people over coals and put people nailed into barrels and all these crazy things. Or, or even when they sewed all the rocks into that wolf so the goats could cross the bridge. You know, all, all those things are just scary. Um, I'm not sure if I have my finger on my first scary book, but the first book to tra that traumatized me was The Shining. Uh, but a lot of books traumatized me before that, but The Shining kind of stands out as special. I feel like most of your answer might have actually just been world history, just things that people have done to <laughs> each other. <laughs> yeah. Nobody of, expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> with a mix of the fantastical. Uh, Monica? Um, my first scary book was actually this hardcover collection of Eastern like ghost folklore from places like Japan and China. And I think, I, I mean, I was very young at the time. I was probably about six or seven years old. And I honestly think that book was left behind by the people who owned our cottage before we purchased it. And my mom was, she was big into, I remember gr growing up and coming up from kindergarten, watching Doctor Who with her and disaster movies. And so, you know, she was totally cool with showing me this book of this Eastern folklore and it was illustrated. So it had all these really kind of cool line drawings and sort of etching style artwork of demons and ghosts. And I think from the moment my eyes first fell on it, I was obsessed. That's really specific and unexpected actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting you bring up Doctor Who because my mother once told me as a child, the theme song to Doctor Who scared her so much that she would leave the house when it was on. It was Anyways. a creepy thing back in the day because when you had black and white TV with um, antennas and tinfoil, like I would hear that theme song. I have yet, to, uh, I, I may have to hand in my fantasy card, but I've never seen an episode of Doctor Who. And part of it was because that stupid theme music scared the hell out of me when I was little. Well, it was actually the work of a pioneering female innovator in the cut, cut, cut technique of tape called Delia Derbyshire. So you got to check that out. There's a little history in there. Bill? Well, I guess the first scary book I would write down would be Dante's Inferno. Mostly because it always depicted all the different variations of hell, different ways to torture people, and all that other fun stuff. Going also with the myths and world history was also the type of things that I was always gravitating to quite a bit as a kid. You read Dante's Inferno as a kid? I read Benicula. <laughs> I read Dante's Inferno before getting into high school. Wow. It was the kind of thing that creeped me out and made me happy. There was no cable in those days. You gotta exactly. remember kids these days. We had no cable. We had no computer. We didn't have Super Mario. You we didn't had want to, to wind up the gramophone? Of course. The opposite was that I would also read Asterix and Obelix at the same oh, time, one after books. the other. So 
Tintin was kind of creepy. Yeah, no. no, Tintin, no. No, no, Tintin. This is someone that grew up in a library. This guy's just got everything. I My one was actually Benicula, the celery stalks at oh midnight. My God. <laughs> it was It was stupid. It was a vampire bunny and a dog and a cat, but yep. there was something about it that creeped me out. And I guess at the same time, there was a book called uh, 101 Ghost Stories and Things That Go Bump in the Night. And about half of it was just Grimm's fairy tale plagiarisms where people willingly gave up arms and legs and tongues and whatever to get their heart's desire. And it was just so horrifying to me that someone would give up their tongue so that they could walk, you know? Little Mermaid didn't have that in the Disney version. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. Now, do you remember the first time that you read or watched something and you were too scared to sleep? Something that had you under the covers sweating and you were certain there was something in the corner? Monica? I was never that kid, which is why I was allowed to read and watch horror movies from the time I was very young, because nothing that I saw ever gave me nightmares. But I also had kind of a messed up childhood with some kind of really messed up things going on in my home life that I think were probably much more likely to give me nightmares than, you know, any fictional thing that I saw on TV or in a movie or in a book. So, you know, maybe that kind of gave me a bit of a, a coat of armor, if you will, towards, you know, horror fiction. And at one point in your life, you worked in a morgue, not a functioning morgue, but in a morgue all the same. So I guess you've got a theme. <laughs> <laughs> Sephra? Um, there were a couple of things. I mean, there's been tons of things. I'm a real wussy, scaredy cat. I'm like Monica. <laughs> and uh, I'm still a wussy, scaredy cat. I'm the first to scream at a ghost hunt. Um... But I had, there were a couple of things, when I was really young, um, you know, there were these things called records, and, uh, what? There, <laughs> there were these vinyl things, and they had these, these square covers, and the thing is, there was this record, and both my best friend, Sarah, and my cousin, Rachel, in Maine, had this goddamn record, and what it was, was, uh, ghost stories of some sort, and, one side was the telltale heart and the other side was the headless horseman and I think something else but the telltale heart side scared the hell out of me because it it, it was just it's like Boris Karloff and it's the beating of the heart and all you hear is the beating of the heart and then the actual cover of the album was like the planks and then the guy in the planks and it's all kind of like murky and then this bright red eye like a vulture and I'd have to flip the cover over to not see it, it, it would scare, I'd just walk into like either of their bedrooms, depending on, you know, if it's winter or summer, where I am, and I'd see that friggin' record, and I'd freak out, I'd have a heart attack, I couldn't sleep, you know, I'd wake up in the night, and there it is staring at me, you know, it, it, it just traumatized me, and then, and that, that's something that scared me so much, I couldn't sleep, and then when I was a bit older, I don't remember how old I was, um, maybe eight or ten or something, and I, my, um, my brother and I, my parents used to drop my brother and I off movie theaters all the time. You go to movies for 50 cents, you see like five movies or whatever. And uh, usually it was Disney things, but for some reason this time it was Planet of the Apes. <laughs> and uh, it traumatized me so bad. Those ape movies, like the, the ape at the end going, Mama, you know, not uh, in the one version and how they talk and how they electrocute their brains. And that stuff scared the hell out of me. I would not sleep when coming home from those movies. I'd wake up. I'd always be afraid someone would be coming to get me to electrocute my brain. And uh, it's just those movies really trip me out. And they're not even horror. I don't even know what they are, but they, they really trip me out. And they're a big part of who I am today. <laughs> I think that that maybe now we would call them speculative fiction. It might yeah, fit into yes. that genre. Yes. Yeah, but I don't know what they weren't horror. Maybe they're science fiction. They were I don't called know. science no, fantasy. But they horrified me more than horror movies did. And maybe that's because when I went to a horror movie, you know you're going to a horror movie, but you're going to see something called Planet of the Apes, and you've never seen the comic because you're from a very protected family, and you're only allowed to watch Walt Disney at six o'clock on Sundays and Bugs Bunny at five o'clock on Saturdays, and then the whole rest of my life I'm not allowed to watch TV. Then I go and see Planet of the Friggin' Apes. <laughs> it's traumatizing. And twenty horror novels later, here you are. <laughs> well, see how that works out. out. <laughs> Bill. Well, I guess I fall into the category of a big fat nope on that one. Um, I. Nothing really ever made me not go to sleep. Like, I I would like a light done. Um, I can say that there are probably two movies that I can identify that probably did give me the chills for a while. Uh, one being Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, and it's only because there's one specific scene about a child sacrifice in it. 
Uh, and then Carrie, the very last scene where the hand pops up out of the grave. Oh, yeah. That one man. was a good freak out. And it's Woo. like, ah! And that's about it. Uh, but I, I grew up the opposite of Seth, watching every single freaking scary, creepy, science fiction, science fantasy, whatever kind of movie. Godzilla was Saturday morning, afternoon, whatever. No problem without fail. So it never really phased me ever. So that leads into our next question. What led you to become a horror writer? Zombies. 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 What, what was first contact with zombies where you thought, you know what, I want to create something with this idea? Well, it's kind of a toss-up on the whole idea. Of, uh, a lot of people try to keep identifying uh, intellectual properties attached to things like George Romero. A lot of people try and always keep going as a comparison to the consumerism, uh, rampant uh, downtrend of society and all that other stuff. And it's like, and on the other side, it's just fun. So it's like somewhere in the middle, the two kind of work out slash don't work out, and that's the kind of thing that I always get fascinated, is how do people get from point A to point B, and I like to explore that, so that's just basically the way it went for me. All right. And Safra, I, I feel like it might have something to do with The Shining. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> yes. The Shining was kind of like my pivotal moment of I want to be a horror writer when I grow up because I couldn't, uh, when I read that book, I couldn't sleep. I had to just power through that book over two days. Didn't leave my room, didn't have a life, didn't do anything. Um, and that, for some reason, whatever it was, that book hit me at the right time where it just terrified me. And I want, you know, I shut the book and said, I want to do this to other people when I grow up. And I think at the time I was about 15, because I think it came out in 77. And because uh, I seem to recall it came out around the same time as Star Wars. And, and Jaws and Tommy, those were all four things that really like fucked up my brain. I became a totally different person being exposed to those four movies. Um, but you know, like I said, I grew up with these crazy fairy tales and all this stuff. And my very first poems were about squirrels getting run over by cars and all their guts on the streets. You know, and I still have those books. I was like five. Um, you know, so I was writing horror stories way back. And it's because of all those damn dog books. I kept writing about you know the dogs caught in house fires and dead and the ghosts come back you know so I was always grim <laughs> I guess is the word but you know I'm half Spanish half Finnish you know in the Spanish we got Goya and bullfights and all that shit and then the Finnish they're all ghosts and you know they got all their crazy stuff too Rick Howdell is Finnish and you know he, he wrote tons of ghost stuff so I come by it honestly I think my crazy weirdness Monica what uh, what led you to where you're at I, I've often thought about it, and I don't think I ever made a conscious decision to write, like, dark fiction or horror. It's just what I've always written. Like, from the time I was in second grade and the teacher was like, write a story for class, I'd write some messed up thing about ghosts or kids lost in some crazy maze that has no exit or... And so even now, it's when I sit down and I get a story idea, it's always something dark or twisted or weird and, you know, maybe that comes from some of the messed up darkness that was in my own childhood. And, you know, writing about things that were even darker and more messed up was cathartic in some way. But was I thinking at that level, you know, as a grade, as a second grader or a fourth grader? Probably not. But, you know, whenever we had to write a story, inevitably, whatever came out was always dark and messed up. But that, I, I think that that speaks to a lot of experience where you're creating your own world uh, to get out of the one that you're in. Do you think that was part of it? You were creating a, a different environment or reality for the kids in your head just to, to escape? I'm not sure it was that conscious. Like, when you're a kid, I don't think you think at that level at all. It was just, that was what was natural to write. That was what I wanted to write. That was what I wanted to read. You know, I guess maybe I was attracted to those stories because, you know, growing up in a home where my mother suffered from a mental illness and uh, a, a mental illness that was growing rapidly worse and eventually culminated in her suicide, um, you know, that brought so much darkness into my life that I think maybe I was at the time, you know, looking back as a grown-up now, attracted to the genre because it was even darker than what I was experiencing in the house. So in a way... It was sort of escaping into an even worse case scenario 
But, you know, at the same time, there's people that prefer to escape into comedy or high fantasy or... So what is it about my personality that attracts me? I have no idea. But, you know, ever since I first glommed on to ghosts and monsters, it was like, that was it. That was where I was going to, that was what I was going to love for the rest of my life. <laughs> and now your whole life is face on ghosts, monsters, gore. Pretty much. <laughs> zombies, everything. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> 24-7. For myself, it was actually Salem's Lot. Um, it was, there was something about the book cover. It was, uh, the edition I had, it was the black cover with the embossed vampire face with the one drop of red blood. And I was just dying to read it. It was in the in the adult section of the library, and one day I just went up and got it, even though I thought I was too young to get it, and they were going to not let me take it out of the library. And I just fell into this Stephen King world. And he's, he's not actually one of my favorite horror writers. I found a lot of his work sort of um, challenging or obtuse or, you know, like the finger coming out of the sink. I mean, there's, there's things I haven't even finished by him. But this one work I just thought was totally perfect and you know the vampires crawling up the walls i lost sleep for nights over that and i probably read it three times even though i knew the next day i would barely able to get out of bed because it had terrified me so much and i had the same the same reaction i think is a lot of a lot of people who want to write i want to do that to someone else i i didn't want to recreate it but i wanted to know that at some point someone read something that i wrote and they lay in bed cursing my name <laughs> because they were certain there was something in the corner. And I'm sure when you achieve that, it feels great. <laughs> now it's time for our interview, and for this one we have Crystal Bork in conversation with Stoker Award-winning poet and writer Linda Addison. Linda discusses her adventures in screenwriting, horror influences, what draws her to poetry and short fiction, as well as what we can expect from her next. Hi everyone, this is Crystal Bork, a member of the HWA Ontario chapter. I am here today with Linda Addison. And Linda is an American poet and a writer of horror, fantasy, and science fiction. With over 300 published poems, stories, and articles, her work has appeared in many publications, including Essence Magazine and Asimov's Science Fiction Magazine. She is also the first African-American winner of the Bram Stoker Award, which she has won four times so far. In 2001, she won for her poetry collection, Consumed, Reduced to Beautiful Grey Ashes, and in 2007, Being Full of Light, Insubstantial. In 2011, she won the Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in a Poetry Collection for How to Recognize a Demon Has Become Your Friend. Her fourth HWA Bram Stoker Award was for the collection The Four Elements, which was also written with Marge Simon, Rain Graves, and Charlie Jacob. Linda is a founding member of the Circles in the Hair Writing Group. She's a member of HWA, HF, sorry, SFWA and SFPA, and she is the current poetry editor editor of Space and Time magazine. So I wanted to thank you, Linda, for being part of episode six. Welcome to the Great Lakes Horror Company podcast. Well, thank you. I'm uh, honored to be part of this. Very cool. Excellent. We'll jump right into the first question. Um, okay. I wanted to know more about uh, what, did it, what is it like to grow up with a parent who loves to tell stories, and how did this influence your writing? Well, that was everything for me. I mean, I, my mother, who didn't even have a high school diploma at the time, later on, once I, most of us were, because there were nine of us, I was the oldest of nine. Oh, wow. Okay. Most of us were out of the house. She did go back and get her high school diploma, but, um, and uh, it was kind of a magical way of being. I mean, we didn't have books in the house. It wasn't a house full of books like my house is, and uh, it seemed to be um, a way for her to keep us entertained. She was very comfortable with it, and she would make up these stories that would go night to night, you know, they would always end. I mean, she was such a natural storyteller she would end it like on a cliffhanger and like okay you guys got to go to bed now and I'll tell <laughs> tomorrow and I mean it was really 
such a natural thing for her that I just really thought everybody's parents did that. And it wasn't until later on in elementary school that I was like, oh, wow, this is special. Okay. So (laughs) then it transitioned in a way for me because um, as she brought in the next baby, it became my job to take care of the other children and, and my other brothers and sister. And I just naturally started making up stories too. I mean, my mind was full of, um, imagination just seemed to be like the way to go. So it was, uh, she, she was everything for me. That's, that's amazing. And I, I really enjoy that. I had a mother who would read stories to us. Um, and I mean, do you, do you feel more comfortable even today sort of oral st- storytelling or, or do you prefer writing? It's pretty much both for me. I mean, when I'm writing, it's coming, it's a very um, auditory thing for me. Okay. It comes very much in, 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 um, in my head in words that I can hear. And especially when I'm editing, I'm always reading everything out loud. I have written poems like just, you know, off the top of my head in, in gatherings. Just go. <laughs> So <laughs> I think it's a it's a unique a unique skill and I think it's a very valid and, and important skill. Um I guess in in line with that why do you think um you know it is a very imaginative process. Um so now you sort of write in in the horror fantasy and sci-fi genre. So you know why does that particularly appeal to you? Well I I often, I've thought about this a little bit because I have tried to write regular fiction quote-unquote <laughs> regular right well, you know, without magical strangeness going on i don't right. even know what that means because everyday life seems a little magical and odd to me but i just think it's the way my brain is wired you know i've always i, I was that kid in school in elementary school that sat in class i was very shy and withdrawn to which most people who know me now are like, yeah, right, Linda. But it's true. I'm just, I like to joke that I'm catching up now by talking so much. But I never, I, when I, once I hit school, I read everything I could find I, because it was a continuation of this magicalness that I believed in. And I think my brain is just wired that way. Whenever I imagined something or whenever I was stressed out, my mind would start spinning a little imaginative story about why. Why was I being picked on? It wasn't because I was, like, not cool, quiet, didn't wear cool clothes. It was because I had wings and they were jealous. I mean, you know, it's just it's just the way my brain was wired. And my mother's stories always had a little magic in them, too. So oh, it's like a natural step. <laughs> uh, you know, following along that, that lines, in, in terms of horror, have you ever had um, an experience, sort of perhaps a ghost experience, a spiritual experience, um, anything that uh, would kind of tie in with, with I, I mean, for me personally, I'm, I've never had an experience, but I'm sort of drawn to creepy things. I would like to have an experience. So I'm always curious to know if that is a draw uh, because you, you had an experience in your youth or anything like that. Well, it's, it, when you're asking me this, I think of two things. One, um, yes, I've had lots of experiences, actually. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. All right. Two, the writing of horror came later in my writing career. I mean, I started making up stories when I was eight, nine years old. but They were mostly, you know, based around what I was reading in school, which was the fables, right? right? You know, Hans Christian and yeah. Yellow fantasy and blue book of fantasy so they were all kind of fantasy oriented and I grew up in a tough neighborhoods and life was a little bit tough so and I don't know I mean we watched scary movies as we called them in my house all the time my mother and I used to love watching scary movies but I wonder without really being able to know for sure whether or not I didn't naturally go to imagining that because there was enough sort of everyday horror for me just walking out the door and going to school so (laughs) (laughs) I sometimes think that that had something to do with it so when I did start writing and getting published a lot of it was science fiction and fantasy and then at some point in my life I feel that and I feel this in general that I became more centered and secure and able to start writing about what did scare me 
and what I find horrific in the world, which, you know, is a lot. So, <laughs> so okay, so experiences. Well, I'll tell you, I've had a lot of them, but I'll tell you about one that I, that I think is very interesting. And in general, my mother and I and my sister have, and there's seven boys in my family and two girls. My mother and I in particular, but me with my sisters and brothers occasionally, my mother and I always had this psychic connection that was just ridiculous. Like literally, I could pick the phone up to call her and she's there. It hasn't rung because she was calling me. Nice. That happened more than once, so I'm just saying. Right, right. So, um, but one experience I had, which I, I always think about as being quite interesting, I think it was more of a, a time travel thing rather than horror, is that I used to live in the village in New York. I'm in Tucson, Arizona now. And I was walking down Bleecker Street, um, and there was a store that had one of those big signs overhead with the lights, big heavy sign, you know, advertising. So I'm walking under it, and I hear this crash, and I jump to the side, and then I hear this crash. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it's the sign coming down. There you go. Yeah. Which I had been standing under it. Not sure you and I would have been having this no, conversation. No, I'm... <laughs> but a, a different conversation, so... <laughs> Wow, that's, yeah, that's life-saving, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'm not sure if there wasn't some quantum physical sh shift in time and space that actually happened right. there. So. <laughs> Very cool, that's cool. Um, I wanted to talk a bit about how to recognize a demon has become your friend. Uh, love the title, first of all, uh, absolutely drawn to that. Um, <laughs> and after reading it, I particularly loved, you know, um, sort of, the blur between the line between, you know, is it, is it a demon? Is it a friend? Um, and I kind of relate to those as, as the twist in the story. Um, and I, I love twists that they're my favorite and I, you just, you just do them so well. So I wanted to ask you, you know, how do you approach these kinds of, of twists how, or shifts? Um, because they are difficult to pull off really well in a way that leaves the reader feeling satisfied. Well, I think it's really important. I mean, it's important to me whether I'm writing a poem or a story for there to be some shift, something that brings a different energy. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, for me, I'm not interested in reading it. Right. So, I mean, I do it for myself more than anyone else. And, and again, it is part of a natural rhythm that seems to have developed with me with writing, and I don't know why, maybe... You know, I mean, maybe one day if I could sit and figure out what all the influences were that I read growing up. And my mother's stories always had twists. Mm -hmm. okay. I mean, oh. she always kept them interesting in that way. There was always some, none of her stories just went straight line. It would always be, now we're going down this road, oops, it's just made a quick turn. So, again, maybe there's something about that that became part of my natural storytelling. But I, I also, I'm as a an editor for Space and Time magazine, when I'm reading poetry, I look for that kind of energy to me. I look for a poem that does a turn. It's a quite, um, to me, it makes it an interesting poem to read. And I'm not saying it's, you know, that you should always write that way. People don't, that's fine. But I find that very interesting. Um, so that's, that was, you know, important to me when I write. Uh, yeah, like I said, I, I, I love that about um, that particular collection. I thought it was fantastic. So really great stuff. Um, that kind of leads into my next question, um, that you primarily write poetry and short fiction or just, just shorter works. Um, I, I personally write novels and I love novels. Um, and, and that being said, you know, I, I love a good short story and, and poem. So what appeals to you about that partic those particular forms of writing? Well, poetry, for one thing, is just a natural, it's my, I call it my first voice. Okay. It's, okay. it's the first thing that I go to. And in fact, it's always going on in the back of my head constantly. I'm talking to you now, poems are going through my head. I mean, okay. <laughs> it's a <real> <laughs> It's a real, I can't explain it until I get a brain scan one day thing, you know? That'd be <laughs> just, fascinating. I'd love to. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, I mean, and I've, I've, I've said this to people and, and been tested. They're like, well, write me a poem. And I can write a poem about anything. Write me a poem about this pen in my hand. And I do. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. just how my brain works. So poetry is, 
is just breath for me. Short stories um, come to me in a flash, okay. usually a character, a story, a concept, something, and then I build on that. And interestingly enough, I'm working on novels now. Oh, fantastic. Which is a really different land to play in. Absolutely. And I've avoided it for many years because I was a little afraid I'd get lost <laughs> and never finish. <laughs> right. <laughs> but what happened is uh, I'm in my, my, six, my early 60s now, and I've had some losses. I've lost my parents. I've lost some friends who are younger than me, and I would like my friends to stop doing that, please. Right. Um, <laughs> and I came... And, a, you know, a very close aunt of mine, which is what drew me to Tucson. And I came to a conclusion in the last couple of years that I had all these ideas for novels that I wanted to do. When am I going to do them? You know, because we haven't got the technology yet where everyone's getting younger. Time is marching by. Right. So I finally, and I had conversations with a couple of um, authors in the field who are well-known and won awards and, you know, publish their butts off and, and, and between their advice and my feeling like when am I going to do this if I'm going to I finally decide to just give it a try so I've got about 15 of them outlined wow, that's <laughs> <I know. laughs> it's a little it sounds crazy I, no, it sounds great to me like having them outlined that's half the battle you're you're halfway there uh, Mm. Yeah. <laughs> writing them is a lot easier than writing them. Let true, me tell you. And what happens for me is the outlines, I did it because it gives me a comfort that I won't get lost. Okay. And I don't feel stuck to the outline. Like, I feel like, yeah, I can lose them. But what does it for me is characters. They're the characters. Mm -hmm. And really, that was the other draw for me is that um, the book I'm working on right now is part of a series. Okay. And it's based on the story that I did for Dark Matter 1 which was published in 2000, and that was the first uh, collection of African-Americans writing speculative fiction, which was extraordinary. Mm -hmm. It was um, edited by Cherie Thomas and published by Warner Books, and I had been published before that, but pretty much no one knew I was black, because, you know, you send the stuff in, you don't send it for a picture. <laughs> no one knows anything. They kind of figured probably that I was a girl, because my name was Linda. Right. So after that, I... Um, got a lot more um, attention. And actually, the book brought attention to so many more writers in the field, uh, other than a few you know, names that we all know, Samuel Jack, uh, Jackson, Dan, <laughs> Danny, and Octavia Butler. So it was a wonderful thing. In any case, that story took place about 10,000 years in the future. It was off Earth. It was looking for new Earth. And I'm, very, I'm really fascinated with quantum mechanics. I always have. I have a BS in math and love physics. And so the book's are based on the concepts that I introduced in that story. And it's been a lot of fun. It's been work, and it's been hard, and it's been nerving, unnerving, but it's also fun. Oh, that sounds... Um, that sounds we'll fun. see. We'll see if I can do this. I always say, we'll see if I can actually do this. I know I can do poetry and short stories, but we'll see about this. <laughs> That's fantastic. And I mean, you know, why not give it a try, right? Like... Exactly. Open to everything. Exactly. Um... I wanted to also talk a little bit about um, uh, collaborations because you've done some mm -hmm. collaborations with other authors and The Four Elements was written with three other female Bram Stoker award-winning authors. And this, this fascinates me because, um, you know, I know it kind of takes a village to write a book, but I'm very, very much, I like writing by myself. I like that, that sort of seclusion that it gives me so what is it like to to collaborate and and work with others well for me it's not um something that i naturally drawn to there are people who um work in collaboration and they find one or two partners that work very well together mm -hmm. and i like you like to sit and just you know, like you know chew on my own stuff here mm -hmm. and then get it out although i do have a writer's group um circles in the hair that gets giving me incredible feedback as far as, you know, making the writing better. Well, the, the, the two collaborations that I've done are very different. Four Elements was, and actually it was a, uh, a concept I 
introduced to the other three okay. um, authors. It came up in a conversation between myself and another horror writer, Gerard Huenaire, and he, we were talking, and he was like, wow, we were, we were talking. Somehow it just sort of came up like, well, what about a book, you know, with the four elements and four women that had won Bram Stoker's? And so I approached the other authors who I did know. And the difference with that collaboration, and I'll talk about Dark Duet, um, is that each person wrote their own section. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't that we were writing together. And since I proposed it, I allowed them to pick their element, and I was left with air, which was perfect, because I'm kind of wind dragon air fascinated, so it all worked out for me. And then, so each person did their own section. We tried to keep it balanced within, like, so everyone's was about the same size, and... um I don't. I think we all sort of read each other's work, gave feedback on anything, and that was very different. Okay. That's kind of a, a e- an easier collaboration. Dark Duet was a different collaboration, and really, it was the most be- a most beautiful experience for me. It's a, a book I wrote with Stephen Wilson. It did not win a Bram Stoker, in spite of people's concept that everything I write does. It's <laughs> not true, but it did end. It ended up being on the final ballot, which was pretty awesome right yeah. I mean, to me it was awesome for Stephen because at that point I had three so I was very happy for him um, he approached me about the book and he's he and I met him at conventions and you know kind of like you know our, our energy sort of dug so it was good and he, he writes what's called concrete poetry which is poetry that makes shapes on the t- on the page right. my poetry has a tendency to just march down the page with indents you know like soldiers. So I was excited to work with him so that I could use a different form. I like stretching. I like trying different things. I think for me it brings something new out and it makes it interesting and I like that. So he and I actually wrote poems together, many of them. Sometimes the poems, he would write a poem and I would write a poem in reaction to his poem. So we did a lot of that but the poems we wrote together were amazing experience and I'm afraid to even try that with too many people. I've actually, I, I actually just, I wanted to, to do a shout out to Timothy Flint, Flynn because I actually did a couple of poems with him too. But, um, but this was a whole book, and the way we did the book was, oh, I was in New York, he was in California, so he would write a couple of lines, send it to me. I would write a couple of lines, send it to him, and we set the rules up that either of us could edit the previous work. Mm-hmm. And we worked without ego. And to me, that's the only way that a collaboration like that could work. Otherwise, it becomes a marriage waiting for a divorce. And who wants to do that? I've done it. It's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the marriage part. Okay. So it was a beautiful, beautiful experience with Stephen because neither one of us had any ego in changing or having our work changed. We also had different but a similar voice music to sing and it was just it was it was i mean we literally fell in love with each other on um you know on, on a level of brother sisterhood that um i have not experienced writing with someone else so that's incredible and and i think hard to find sometimes because yes. i think you know the main point is the ego to take your ego completely out of it and sometimes that's not easy to do so no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I also read on your website that uh, you're working on the Seven Magpies film. Yes. Oh, this is an exciting, exciting um, new thing also. I'm so beyond excited about it. Um, I was contacted. Wow. I need to bring up names because I'm really bad remembering uh. names. But, ooh. I'm ashamed of myself. Um, anyway, let me just talk about the, the thing because then I'll try to remember the names to shout out to people. But I was contacted about this idea of doing um, a film of seven shorts written by seven black women and then directed by seven black women directors. And I was fascinated by the concept and it, since it wasn't going to take a lot of, you know, it wasn't going to take me off the novel track for months and months, which I really did not want to do. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's bubbling. It's working. They're, they're working on it. I mean, we went through our process, all seven of us. Set, and it's based on this um, 
little child ditty called Seven Magpies, um, which if you go to my site at lindaaddisonpoet.com, you'll see the actual um, child uh, thing, the little seven-line ditty that is based on... Nursery rhyme, right? The... Right, it's a little nursery rhyme. So it's really an exciting idea. I'm, I really look forward in the future to being able to see my work done in some film ways. You know, I think visual would be awesome. I'm a total film freak. I love watching movies. And I've, I've mentioned this before. I am that person that when everyone leaves, there's like five people still watching the credits at the end. Yeah. <laughs> That's me. Yeah. I'm one of them. So I, w- I want to see that in the future for me. So I'm, I'm real excited about the Seven Magpies Project. And it's you can find it on Facebook. On um, um, There's a site out there, and all the links are on my site. So it's pretty cool. It, it is a pretty neat experience. And I was wondering if, um, you know, have you experienced much difference between writing, you know, the novel writing, the, the poetry writing, and writing for screen? Is there any major differences there or is it sort of the same kind of process for you well i'm not actually doing the screenwriting okay so some of the authors uh have the ability i can tell you i've looked at it and screenwriting is a whole different kind of writing and so i didn't i don't feel like i couldn't learn Mm -hmm. but i didn't want to take the time away and I'm not sure I would like do it as well as someone who actually did screenwriting so I think it's a very I think writing scripts is a very very different animal so and I appreciate that that's why I'm not even going to try to play there (laughs) (laughs) no your strength that's good we're sort of reaching the end of our uh 20 minute mark here um so we we've already talked about the the novel writing that you're uh, attempting so I want to know what's what's next for for Linda Addison what what do you have uh, planned well this year I'm doing a lot of events um, I, I used to work in the computer industry and I made a big leap in moving here selling things in New York and leaving the computer industry to concentrate on writing full-time so that was a gigantic change of my life. Anyway, what came as a side effect of this year is it's pretty um, amazing. Is that I've been invited to several uh, writers' conferences and conventions where, you know, as a guest and, and being honored, which is breathless to me because I just sit in the room and write and hope people like it, you know? <laughs> I don't know. And uh, so far, I've been pretty blessed that uh, it seems people do. So I'll be doing some, I'll be at different events, which people can look on my site. The next one in March here in Tucson is the Tucson Festival of Books, which is huge. Mm-hmm. I did not know this. I went last year, and I'll be signing uh, and selling books at the HWA ta- table there. So yes. I'll put out booth that is. Um, this novel I'm working on now is pretty much my big writing obsession, and it's a three-book series. So I would love to see it done into a film because I think it would be awesome. It's way future. I'm playing with quantum mechanics. I'm just like having a good time using my imagination there. So after this, I mean, I have some ideas, of course, for the other books I was talking about. And I also have an idea for a nonfiction book series called Lessons and Blessings. And it's really more a workbook for people to work with. It's not a self-help book. It's a way for you to write your own self-help book. So that's really like on the horizon for me. That's fantastic. You certainly have a lot going on, which is is really great. Um, Do you find... That there's a significant difference in b- between you know having that full-time job and now dedicating your your time to writing is it more of a freedom or do you find you need more to define more structure around your day um, I had to change how I did structure completely and literally it took me a year and I'm still doing some adjustment to adjust I thought it would be so easy because when I, I've been writing my whole life so what I did is I'd go to the job, I'd come home, you do life, right? Laundry, pay bills, yep. relationships, child, you know, I have a son. And then spend 15, half an hour writing each day. And that's how I did these over 300 things, right? <laughs> Vacations and weekends. Yep. I, didn't, I didn't party a lot. 
now I have all this time, and I thought, ooh, well, I'll finish this book in two weeks, and then I'll go to the next book. I'll have so much time. <laughs> it doesn't quite work that way because the imagination, the brain, the energy has to unfold in its own time. So it's been a real learning experience for me. Mm. I really feel like I've sort of won the lottery of life because while I don't have all the goo gobs of money I had working in computers, I'm just so much happier. This is what I was born to do. So I would rather, like, you know, eat rice and beans every day (laughs) be able to write and be comfortable in my little house here now. So it feels like a whole other life. That's great, and congratulations for for being able to do that and taking the leap in doing that. That's really thanks. Fantastic. It was scary. It oh, was scary. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Uh, well, that's that's all the questions I have for you today. I want to thank you so much for taking the time uh, and letting me interview for our our podcast. Oh, it's been a pleasure. The time went really fast. You had great questions. Oh, thank it was you. <laughs> it was good. I appreciate uh, you taking the time to do the research so you could do that. Oh, and wow. reading my book. Thank wow. you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I enjoy I read it probably in one sitting. So it was really <laughs> yeah. yeah, I loved it. It was fantastic. And now you've got that recognizing demons all down. Oh yes? yeah. I'm I'm on the <laughs> I'm on the lookout now. It's it's great. <laughs> That was Crystal Bork's interview with Linda Addison. You can find Linda online at cith.org slash Linda. Now, Sephra will take us through some great events coming up where you can buy books, meet authors and celebrities, and get some free swag from our booth. Yes, come, come and meet members of the HWA Ontario chapter at Toronto Comic Con on March 18th to 20th. Come by our booth. We're giving away some prizes and we're giving away lots of buttons. And uh, just get to know more about us. A lot of members will have their books on sale as well. Uh, In May, you certainly should come to StokerCon in Las Vegas at the Flamingo Hotel, uh, where the Horror Writers Association will be having their annual Stoker Banquet, where we determine who is has the best work of the year, uh, whether novel, first novel, short stories, poetry. And there was also Horror University. You can sign up for classes. So that's in beautiful Las Vegas in May. And also, many members of the HWA will be at Ad Astra in Toronto, Ontario, April 29th to May 1st. And other members of the HWA will be in... Provo, Utah, that very same weekend at the World Horror Convention. So, you will find HWA members wherever you go, so I hope to see you soon, and come by our booth and say hi. Join us next time when we discuss the art of storytelling and are joined by Mike McCarty, Horror Writers Association member and a special effects makeup expert whose creepy credits include The Walking Dead, Kill Bill, and Mirrors. Tonight, we will be closing with Delia by Procon. Until then... Whatever you do, don't fall asleep.
Cut, cut, then we reconstruct. <laughs>